Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you will, and we'll begin there, starting with the first verse here in just a moment. God has always wanted His people to be a separate people. That was seen early on, even prior to Deuteronomy chapter 7, all through the law that had been given. By the way, Deuteronomy is the re-emphasis of the law, thus called Deuteronomy. It's where it's being emphasized again. It's not the second giving as much as the re-emphasis of the law. But the law had already been given that God's people were to be a separate people. So as Moses, in this 30-day period in which he's lecturing the people and preaching to the people of what they are to be as they enter into the land of Canaan, he tells them in the second sermon that they are to be a distinct and separate people. In fact, Deuteronomy 7 is all about a separate people. If you have chapter headings that you have either put there or maybe your translator calls it a chosen people. But if it's one from a Bible class, you may have that these are to be a separate people. What do I see in this chapter? Well, verse 3 he says, concerning the people that are still in the land, make no covenant with them. When you go into the land, you're going to drive the people out. Make no covenant with them according to verse 2. That is the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites. Make no covenant with them. Furthermore, I want you to notice in verse 3, don't marry those people. Don't give your sons to their daughters and their da- uh, your daughters to their sons. Don't intermingle and marry with those people. Be a separate people, he is saying. Furthermore, at verse 4, he warns of the danger of mingling and marrying them. You'll learn their ways, you'll learn their idolatry, and you'll depart from God, and you'll stir the wrath of God. Now notice at verse 6, He said, because you are to be a holy, that's a separate people, a holy people that God has chosen you for a people for himself, a special treasure. So his point is, I want you to be a separate people. You're holy, you're set apart, you're chosen for my purpose and myself, and you are my special treasure. You are to be a separate people. Now let's leave that 7th chapter and turn over 7 more and come to the 14th division. Notice in Deuteronomy 14 and in verse 2, same book, same lecturer, Moses, preaching to the people again, different sermon this time, and he's saying in chapter 7, 14 and in verse 2, the same point. God has chosen you to be a people to himself, a special treasure among all the people. So of all the nations and all the tribes of people on the face of the earth, God has chosen this nation out, the nation of the Jews, to be a separate and a distinct people. That's the point I want us to see. We see 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9 that the New Testament refers to Christians as being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special treasure. Again, they are to be a distinct people. Now we could go on citing passage after passage, establishing the point. What we see though is, God has always wanted his people to be a distinctive, separate people. But man had a different idea. Man has always had a desire to be like the rest of the world. Man looks around, even though they're supposed to be a separate people, when they got into the land of Canaan, they looked around and began to notice, here's what's going on among all the people, and we'd like to be like those people. In fact... Following the period of the Judges, which is what we're in, at the end of the period of the Judges, 
1 Samuel 8 in verse 5 says, Now make for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They'd been saying that long before this point. They'd been looking around and saying, We see kings over here and we see kings over there, and we'd like to be like those nations rather than being a different kind of nation. We'd like to have a king like everybody else has. And they tried it. Didn't work. But finally at this point, they say, We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We do not want to be distinct. But this ought to be familiar because this was in our Bible class this morning. Be not conformed to this world. That is, don't let the world's pressure and mold you and shape you and squeeze you into its mold. But in other words, don't be like the world. Be distinct, be separate like Deuteronomy 7 had said. So I don't want to suggest you. Let's fast forward from all of that. For the last several years, the church is losing its identity. By the church, I'm talking about not religion across the world. That's happened a long, long time ago. But among churches of Christ, churches are losing their identity of being a separate and a distinct people. So let's look at one side for a moment, then we'll come to another side of the coin. And on the one side, we have those that would label themselves as progressives. What we might think of as those who are institutional are liberal. By liberal, that's not a derogatory term and to refer to someone. It describes their attitude, just like in, in politics, we describe those who are liberals and those who are conservative. It just simply means they have a liberal attitude toward the Constitution or toward other things. So the same thing is true when it comes to religion. They have a liberal attitude toward the authority of the Scriptures. They themselves refer and have referred to themselves as progressives. Now what is going on among the progressives and those who are liberal-minded to suggest they're lo we're losing our identity, and that is looking at the broader picture of the church? Well, here's some things that are going on. Some now, in fact, for several years, this is not a recent thing like in 2020 or 2021. We're going back for the last 10 years or so. There are some churches in the Nashville area, including Murfreesboro, some churches of Christ that are using instrumental music now. In other words, they're becoming like everybody else. Well, that's not a big, big surprise. Neither is this that there are some churches now having women taking the role of being elders in Birmingham. Some taking the role of being preachers, like in Franklin, Tennessee, among churches of Christ. So these are things that used to be distinctive. We wouldn't have used instrumental music, wouldn't have had women preaching, wouldn't have had women serving as elders, but that's going on among the progressives, as they would call themselves. That's not my term, that's theirs. They're progressive, and this is their progressive movement. Well, let's go a little bit further. You've heard me suggest in a number of times, Lipscomb University has a number of professors that own the Bible faculty that deny the inerrancy of the Scriptures. In other words, the Scriptures are not verbally inspired. They are not inerrant. Paul could have said some things that were wrong because he was not verbally inspired. James could have said some things that are wrong. So the Bible is not inerrant. Most of the Bible faculty at Lipscomb. If you don't recognize that, Lipscomb has been supported by Churches of Christ, and that was part of the institutional controversy. But they've been supported out of the church treasury for a number of years, and started by David Lipscomb, a gospel preacher many years ago. Well, at Abilene Christian College, our university now, the ACU, had a speaker a number of years ago that defended homosexuality seemingly without a lot of rebuttal to that. I'm not saying there wasn't any, but not a lot of rebuttal to that. They've had problems for 20 to 25 years 
of some of the Bible faculty with reference to evolution. What I'm suggesting to you is that among the progressive, they're losing their identity. They're no different than the rest of the world. But you sitting here may be thinking, as I would like to think, but, but thank God that we among those who are non-institutional have maintained our identity. Have we? Do you realize that some among the non-institutional churches of Christ are removing the name Church of Christ from their sign? I'm not saying the thing has to, they even have to have a sign, but the idea behind that is we don't want to taint visitors and make them think we're some kind of Church of Christ. We're just a group of Christians meeting here, and we don't want to give any kind of impression that we identify with churches of Christ at all. And so that's been a movement going on for a number of years now. Among non-institutional churches, the house church movement gained some movement for a while, but among them they've had some problems, and they, they came out of the non-institutional group, many of them did. Some of those are using instrumental music now, and some of those are even denying and teaching baptism is not essential. That's among some of the non-institutionals. Strange things are happening. Some have even had joint services with denominations where you might have a non-institutional church, supposedly, very liberal though, but just not supporting institutions is all that means, may have a joint service with the Baptist church so that they all meet together in the same building and the Baptist preacher preaches for a little while and then the, the member of the church preaches for a little while and they have a joint service. That's happened not far from here. We're losing our identity. The unity and diversity movement of fellowshipping doctrinal error is rampant among brethren so that when man teaches error and we agree that that's erroneous, it's okay to fellowship that because of passages like Romans 14, we're told. That's going on among us. And then add to that, forget the doctrinal matters. Among us, there are those who live like the world, we dress like the world, we talk like the world, we look at things like the rest of the world, so that we have blurred the lines of identity. We're losing our distinctiveness. Now, with all of that in mind, let's talk about the distinctive people of God. We're supposed to be the distinctive people of God. And let's look at some very simple, fundamental things wherein we are supposed to be distinctive. Let's start with this. Let's start with the gospel is a distinctive message. The gospel is a distinctive message. Now, we're not going to notice every single verse that I'll put on the screen. For those who may be taking notes for further study, I'll put those up. But we're going to get the gist of some simple passages about how the gospel is put in truth, puts truth in contrast to error. Let's take 1 John 1. We will turn to this one. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. John says, try the spirits whether they are of God. For many false prophets are going out into the world. So what he's saying, if I might paraphrase, there are many false teachers out in the world. So make sure that when you hear teaching, you put it to the test to find out if it's true. Drop down now to verse 6. Drop down to verse 6. 1 John chapter 4 and in verse 6. He gives us the key, how do I know what's true, and how do I know what's error? <clears throat> Notice verse 6, we are of God, that is the apostles. He who knows God hears us. How do I know, John, whether or not it's true? If it agrees with what the apostles said, it's true. He that is not of God does not hear us. If it doesn't agree with what the apostles taught, it's error. And hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
what the gospel does is draw a clear contrast between what's true and labels that which is in contrast. That's error. Not a different opinion. It's error because it's in contrast to truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 beginning at verse 10. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Then in contrast to that, for this reason God should send them strong delusion, verse 11, that they might believe the lie. So here's the lie in contrast to the truth. That's all I'm wanting you to see. Well, here's a couple of other passages. We won't take the time to notice, but 2 Timothy 4 talks about preaching the word in contrast to those who have itching ears. Remember that? They want to have things taught that are in contrast to the truth. They're not listening to the truth anymore. Similar point made in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Bible presents truth in contrast to error. I want us to see the message proclaimed is the gospel truth. That's what God wants His distinctive people proclaiming is the gospel truth. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word, Paul told Timothy. Preach the word. Peter would say, 1 Peter 4, 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So what we're to be preaching, what we're to be teaching is simply the Word of God as it has been revealed. To do so means we give book in the chapter and the verse. So if I'm preaching what the book of God has to say, I ought to be able to give the evidence from the passage that says that that's what I'm teaching is true. Rather than just merely giving my opinion. Now, let's talk about what this distinctive message involves. This distinctive message means it's going to be filled with scriptures and not the ideas of men. Among non-institutional brethren, you can go to gospel meetings when we get those back going again. And you'll be treated sometimes to lessons that basically say nothing. That use very little scripture. And maybe what scripture is used is taken out of context. Maybe no scripture at all. I've heard some of those sermons and perhaps you have too. No scripture at all. But it may be filled with quotations from Shakespeare, or maybe it's a joke or something else that may be told that's entertaining, but there's no Bible passage. Our job is to preach the Word, preach the truth. Distinctive preaching is filled with Scriptures, not the ideas of men. Distinctive preaching will show the difference between truth and error. Here is what the truth is, and that which is in contrast is error. That's distinctive teaching. It contains a message that you'll not hear from others. In other words, what you hear among the distinctive people ought to be something that you're not hearing in the rest of the world or they'd be like them. What kind of things are we talking about? In other words, what to do to be saved. You don't hear that in all churches. You're going to hear among those who are distinctive people the nature of the church. What is a church and what's it like and what does it consist of? What's its nature? You're going to hear things about Bible authority. What it is and why we need it and how do you apply it. We're going to see something about patterns for worship. That there is but one way, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to hear what's wrong with the errors of men because that's distinctive. What you're going to see in this message is the demonstration that people who do not conform to the will of God are lost. In other words, gospel preaching in Acts 2 made those people uncomfortable and made them want to change. It's what it did in Acts 13. It's what it did in Acts 17. That's what it was designed to do. God wants His people to be a distinctive people of God. That means we have a gospel that is a distinctive message. Here's something else that's distinctive. The church is a distinctive body. The church is a distinctive body. Now let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. 
And I want us to establish that there is just one body. Now, if we want to be like the world and have a king like the rest of the world, we're going to talk about different denominations. We'll come to that in just a second. And treat as if there is not just one church in the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, by one spirit are you all baptized into, notice what he says, one body, O-N-E, one body. The text says there's one body. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 4, the text says there is one body. Whatever the body is, Paul says there's only one. He said he didn't say there's only one. Same text says there's one Lord. Does that mean only one Lord? Well, yeah, it means that. What about one God? Does that mean only one God? Well, yeah, that's what that means. Well, then one body means there's only one body. But what is the body? Same writer, same book, same context, Ephesians 1. He is the head of the body, the church. He defines body and church as being equivalent, being one of the same. So when the text says one body, it means there's one church. That's distinctive. You don't hear that in every pulpit across the land. The church is a distinctive body. The church you read about in the New Testament is not just another denomination. When I hear people using the language of Ashdod, meaning by that, they use language that doesn't conform to the Scriptures, you hear Christians sometimes talk about those in other denominations. Other denominations? What that implies is that the church we're part of is just a denomination. Here is the idea. The idea is that God's people, this represents this larger circle, represents God's people, those who are saved. Denominationalism suggests that God's people are divided into various segments, sects, that is S-E-C-T-S, various sects, or various groups, or various flavors. So some of God's people identify as Adventists, some of them identify as Nazarene, some as Methodist, some as Catholic. Some would identify as Baptists, and some would identify as Presbyterians, and some as the Church of God, and some as Church of Christ, and on we go, we don't have room for the thousands that might be put there. That's the idea of denominationalism. What's wrong with that picture? Well, people sometimes will say, you know, I'm a member of the Church of Christ. In other words, we're just a portion of God's saved people, but they're saved in all of these churches. There's no, we're not distinctive, in other words. We're no different than anybody else. What's wrong with that concept? Let me give you four reasons why that's wrong. Number one, here's the first thing that's wrong with that. The first thing is it's not found in the Bible. In 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If that picture is in the book of God, where is that picture found in the book of God? It's not found in the scriptures. That's the first thing wrong with it. We could stop there and our job's accomplished, but let's add something else. It's contrary to the plea for unity. Jesus would pray in John 17 that they, that is those who would believe on me through their word, that they may be one as we are one. The Father and the Son are one. Were the Father and the Son united on doctrine? Were they united on the conditions of salvation? Were they united on the deity of Christ? We are to be one as... They were one, the text says, as the Father and the Son are one. Jesus prayed for unity. We'd all speak the same thing, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Be no divisions among you. Here's a third thing wrong with it. It makes a difference what one believes. One who believes the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, would be saved. Those who believed the lie and were deceived would be condemned and they would perish. It makes a difference what you believe. 
The idea of denominationalism says it makes no difference what you believe. And furthermore, it's contrary to the idea of there being one body. If there's one body, denominationalism is wrong. If denominationalism be true, then Paul was wrong when he said there is one body. There is many bodies, in fact. Now, let's talk about the church is those who are saved. Let's consider a simple passage. All of us could quote at least a portion thereof if you can't quote the whole thing. The church and the saved are one and the same. The idea of denominationalism is people are saved, but they don't have to be in the church. You can join the church if you want to, but the church and the saved are not equivalent. But if I can show the church and the saved are one and the same, then the church is distinctive by its nature. In Acts 2, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Those who are being saved are put in the church, and those put in the church were those being saved. They're one and the same people. Let's go again. Ephesians 5, 23, Christ is the Savior of the body. Who does he save? The body. Let's go again. Chapter 2, 16, that he might reconcile, this is another term for salvation, both unto God in one body. Those in the one body and those reconciled are one and the same people. The gospel is a distinctive message. The church is a distinctive body. Our speech is to be a distinctive speech. Now, what do we mean by that? Our speech needs to harmonize with the word of God. What do you mean your speech? I'm not talking about using foul language and using curse words, and so you need to talk nice. I'm not even talking about talking ugly to somebody, but I'm talking about our terminology and our language needs to harmonize with the scripture. And you say, well, why would you say that? I say that because... We need to have sound speech that cannot be condemned. Healthy speech. What do you mean healthy speech? Well, all through the book of Titus, the book of 1 and 2 Timothy, the term sound, wholesome, has to do with that which conforms to the will of God, and it's unwholesome if it does not conform to the will of God. So if my speech is wholesome and sound, it conforms to the will of God. You know this passage well. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Make sure that what you say harmonizes with the word. You say, well, that's talking about preachers. You're right. You're right. It does. Is it only talking about preachers? Does that mean when I stand in the pulpit, I have to make sure that what I'm saying is in harmony with the will of God? But you as an individual go talk to your neighbor. You can use all kinds of terminology that doesn't fit the scriptures while you teach them the word of God. Does that work? Not at all. If any man speak, that's you, that's me, speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we need to call Bible things by Bible names. Now here's what that means in application. We don't use the language of men. You see, religious groups talk about their preacher being reverend. And when someone talks about uh, uh, reverend, uh, I want to, no, that's not me. Why do I not use that title? And why do God's distinctive people not use that title? Because Psalm 111 only uses that term reverend one time. And it's found in Psalm 111 in verse 9 and it refers to God. I'm not reverend. God is to be revered, not me, not you. And so we don't use that title. We don't use that kind of language. Or quite often in the religious world, they use the term pastor to refer to the preacher. And yet that was a term that described one who is a shepherd or one who is an elder or a bishop in the church. 
I wear the name pastor because I happen to be one of the elders, but not because I'm a preacher. Michael over here is a preacher, but he's not a pastor. Not in the biblical sense. But I'm not a pastor because I preach. Nor is anyone else. Because in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, pastor refers to those who were the shepherds or those who are the elders of the church. The term father, call no man father upon earth. It's not talking about you refer to your, your dad as your father in contrast to your mother. But in a religious sense of your religious father, as the Catholics do for example, call no man your father upon earth. We don't use that language. That's the language of Ashdod. Well, when people talk about joining the church, see, I got ready to be saved, and so I decided I was going to join the church. No, you didn't join the church. The Lord added you to the church. There's no Bible reference to joining the church. You're added to the church by the Lord, Acts 2 and verse 47. Or this phrase we talked about a moment ago, those in other denominations, that implies that we are in a denomination and that the church of our Lord is a denomination. If I talked about you and talked about other evil men, that implies you're an evil person, doesn't it? You wouldn't like that language. So when we talk about other denominations, that implies the Lord's church is just a denomination. Contrary to there being one body. We often talk about our faith or our tradition as if there are other faiths. The Bible talks about one faith, Ephesians 4. So let's make sure our language is in harmony with the will of God. The gospel is a distinctive message. The church is a distinctive body. Our speech is to be a distinctive speech. The plan of salvation is a distinctive plan. Because there's only one way in which we can be saved. It's not that we have choices. You go to the grocery store and you decide, you know what, I want some cereal. And you, you look and you have all kinds of choices. All kinds of brands. You have all kinds with sugar and without. How it's made, how it's packaged. You have all kinds of choices. Just pick one. Salvation isn't like that, that I go to the spiritual grocery store. I want to pick the way that I like that I could be saved. The Bible says there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's but one way. Now, Peter would agree with that when he preaches in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is no other name under, under heaven by which men can be saved. In other words, you can't say, well, I, I want to be saved by Christ. And someone said, oh no, I, I'm not really into Christ. But, but I want to be saved and I'm going to choose to be saved in this way. There is no other name under heaven by which you could be saved. There's only one way. So if we're saved in different ways, then God's a respecter of persons. In other words, if God says, okay, you have to be to repent in order to be saved, but this one over here says, I want to be saved, but I don't want to do it that way. I've got a different way. Then God's a respecter of persons. That doesn't work too well. Let's all talk about what the distinctive plan involves. This is not what you hear in the religious world in general. God's people are distinctive. Here's what you hear. The salvation is not by faith alone. Now, much of the world is going to tell us we're saved by faith only. But James says it's not by faith alone. That's a distinctive message. You don't hear that everywhere. It's not by praying the sinner's prayer. You turn your radio on and, and on Sunday morning and listen to, to those who claim to be preachers. Turn your television on and watch some of the evangelists 
There's a commercial on of Franklin Graham, and one of the things he emphasizes is pray the sinner's prayer with me right now. But he never tells us where that sinner prayer is found in the scriptures. Never does he tell us. And his daddy never found it either. It's not found in the scriptures. This idea of praying the sinner's prayer, that I accept the Lord Jesus in my heart, and, and you pray the sinner's prayer and you're saved. None of that's found in the scriptures. So the sinner's prayer is just not found in the Bible. This distinctive message involves repentance being required. Very few emphasize repentance. Oh, have faith. Just come to the Lord and have faith and you're saved. Very little is said in any religious group about repentance. And yet Paul said God commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17. It's got to be a change of heart, change of life, change of action. Confession is required. Do you ever hear on the radio or television or pamphlets from denominationalism that ever says you need to confess your faith in Christ in order to be saved? You don't hear it, do you? And yet Romans 10, 7, uh, 9 and 10, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, With a heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is required. Baptism is required. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism must be immersion. It's a burial in water. Romans 6, 3 and 4. And baptism puts you into one body, not into multiple bodies. In other words, if baptism put me into this church over here that's made up by man, and I was baptized and it put me in that church, it didn't put me in this one over here. Because baptism puts you into one body. It was, oh, I was baptized. I was baptized in the Baptist church over here. So that makes me good for over here. No, that's one body. This is a different body. Baptism just puts you into one. Didn't put you into both. Which one did it put you in? Don't work both ways. You see the distinctive nature of this plan, what it involves and what it requires? God's distinctive people preach a distinctive gospel which has a distinctive message. The church is a distinctive body. Our speech is distinctive speech. Plan of salvation is a distinctive plan. The worship is a distinctive service. You see, worship needs to follow the pattern of God. That makes it distinctive. When we don't, we stand rejected of God. Let's, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. This is a good passage to talk to your friends or neighbors about when, when, uh, when they ask you a question, why is y'all, y'all worship different? Why is it different? To go to Acts 15 at that juncture without some background, they may not understand or know anything about, uh, know anything about this principle of authority. But they can understand this passage in Genesis chapter 4 verses 3 and 4. They know that passage. So let's go there. Let's talk about the case of Adam, or Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. But I want you to notice, it's actually chapter 4 when, uh, in verses 3 and 4. I've got chapter 3 on the screen. This is when Cain and Abel brought their offerings before the Lord and brought them to offer them before the Lord. One brought of the fruit of the ground and the other one brought of the firstlings of their flock. And so as they brought this, one, God had respect for one and not for the other. Now notice at verse 3, in the process of time it came to pass, they came, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and brought Abel also brought of the firstlings of the flock, and the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. What am I learning from that? What I'm learning from that is one was a, had an offering acceptable of worship, and the other had an offering that was not acceptable. What was the difference in the two? 
The difference in the two is one followed the will of God and one did not follow the will of God. You say, how do you know? Because Hebrews 11, 4 says, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. One was offered by faith and the other one was not. One was offered in harmony with the will of God and the other one was not. So here's what I'm learning from that. When we don't follow God's plan, we stand rejected of God. Here's another example. Leviticus chapter 10, 1 and 2. We cannot offer, uh, offer unauthorized offerings before the Lord. Here were the sons of Abel. They brought a sacrifice to the Lord, and it was profane fire, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Did God accept that? No, a fire came out and consumed them. So our, our worship must be distinctive, not just what anybody else wants to offer. Our worship must be according to truth, John 4, 24. All right? Now let's consider the distinctive nature of our worship. What is so distinctive about the worship revealed in the Scriptures? Let's go to Ephesians 5 and verse 19. We sing songs of praise without additional kinds of music. Why? Because Ephesians 5.19 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we're singing unto the Lord. Colossians 3.16 says the same thing. So we're singing without mechanical instruments, without whistling, without humming. We're not offering any other kind of music because all that God has authorized is that of singing. There's no Bible authority for instrumental music. That makes our worship distinctive, like God wanted it to be. Because God didn't authorize anything else. That's part of the distinctive nature of the worship. Let's take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is on the first day and only on that day because the only example we have of a time in which they observed the Lord's Supper was it was on the first day of the week. Acts 20 and in verse 7. So it was only on that day. It is implied that that was every first day of the week. Just like remember the Sabbath day meant every time the Sabbath came around. They did meet every Lord's Day, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. So consequently, what I'm learning from that, this is part of the distinctive nature. You don't serve the Lord's Supper at any time. We don't serve the Lord's Supper on Monday night. We don't serve it once a month or once a quarterly. But it's served every first day of the week and only on the first day of the week. And the contribution is only on the first day of the week. We don't take up a collection on Friday night. We don't take it up on Saturday night. We don't take it up on Monday afternoon take up a collection only on the first day of the week. That's part of the distinctive nature. Now in denominationalism, you may find in having a contribution at any time. The Lord's Supper may be annually or quarterly. They may even take it of, of another day or another night. They may have mechanical instruments of music. They may have special group singing. The worship of the New Testament is distinctive by its nature. But last of all, let's talk about the Christian life is a distinctive life. It's not just matters of doctrine, and it's not just matters of practice of the church as a whole that is distinctive, but how we live our individual lives must be distinctive in its nature. The Christian life is to be separate from the world. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with the unbelievers. And I'll take the time to establish that's not really talking about marriage. What he's talking about is pulling together in the same load of sin with the world. Don't participate in sin with the world. Notice it, verse 17 says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. In other words, be separate from the world. Don't live like the rest of the world. 1 John 3, verse 4, you've heard it quoted many times, that sin is a transgression of the law. You say, well, I know what that passage is all about. It's defining law. 
It's defining sin. It does that, but that's not the main point. In its context, 1 John 3 verse 4 says, the Christian has a law by which he lives, and that's why he lives free from sin. He tries to live by the law. Now, he will commit sin from time to time, chapter 1 verse 8, but he's going to correct that because he has a law by which he lives. That's why he didn't just live in sin constantly. He's got a law by which he lives. And so the Christian life is distinct. Now, how is the Christian life distinct? The Christian watches his language. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4. He watches what he says. He didn't go out and around in public talking and using language that sounds like the rest of the world. Verse 4 says, Neither filthiness nor that is obscene or foolish talking nor coarse jesting, but that which is fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Don't let obscene things come out of your mouth. Don't let foul language come out of your mouth. Don't let coarse jesting come out of your mouth. Child of God should be distinctive. Your language should be different from everybody at work. You don't say the same words that they say. You don't tell the same jokes that they tell. Distinctive. Well, they watch, we watch our language. They don't drink. Micah developed that passage in detail a week or two ago, a couple of weeks ago. First Peter chapter four and in verse three. And so he's not involved in social drinking. He doesn't do that. He's distinct. They think you're odd because you are distinct. We don't dance, which is lasciviousness. Micah's going to develop that for us here in a week or two, or three. Don't dance. Don't go to the dance. Don't go to the prom. We dress modestly. Because of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Different from the rest of the world. Care about, and being very careful about what he contributes to. Let's talk about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. What is this about? The Christian is very careful what he lends his influence to, what he contributes his money to. You say, what does that have to do with Ephesians 5? Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Here's maybe a religious group. Let's say the Catholic Church, for example, with all of its corruption and all of its error, it's taking up money to take care of the needy, but it goes through the Catholic Church to be dispersed however I want, they want it to be dispersed. Can I take money out of my wallet? Well, they're taking up for the, I think I'll give $20 to that. What I've done is just support error. I support a denominational doctrine. I supported the errors of men. The same thing is true when, when the United, uh, what's, the, what's that group called? They do it at work. United Way, that's what I'm trying to think of. Thank you. The United Way. <clears throat> It supports a number of illicit things. And I take my money and I contribute to that. The Salvation Army, by the way, is a religious group. It's a church, by the way, if you're not familiar with that. So at Christmas time when we contribute our money, we're contributing to a religious organization and a church. They may send to those that are in need, all right. But we've just contributed to a church is what we've done. You see, we're distinct. People think we're odd. You're not going to give to this fund? It does a lot of good. Well, it may do a lot of good, but there's also a lot of damage that's done. I can't support that. I can't support this. I can't support that either. You see, the Christian is distinctive. They're careful about what they contribute to. What they contribute to. Now, what have we seen? God's people are to be distinctive. God, from the very beginning, said, I want my people to be different. I want them to be distinctive. I want them to be different from the world. And man had a different idea, and they came along and said... Uh, I think we want to be like everybody else. So what do we like to be? 
God's people are to be distinctive. The gospel is a distinctive message. The church is a distinctive body. Our speech is a distinctive speech. The plan of salvation is a distinctive plan. The worship is a distinctive service. And the Christian life is a distinctive life. May we ever maintain that distinction, that separateness that God's people are to have that they might be pleasing and acceptable to God. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?